Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to David Goldstein about the new book, The End of Genetics, Designing Humanity's DNA, an urgent plea for a broader understanding and awareness of the unconsidered dangers of the new genetic technologies. David, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much. It's great to be here. So how are you? How was your week? Uh, the, the week has been great so far. Uh, it usually is in San Diego. Catching some sunshine? Yep, it's a terrific day so far. <laughs> great. So can you tell us, what do you do? So I'm a human geneticist, and I, I had spent my whole career in academia, um, and uh, my career focused on uh, identifying uh, mutations that have a strong uh, impact on the risk of disease. And I worked in a broad range of disease areas, uh, neuropsychiatric diseases, uh, kidney diseases, and, and, and a few other disease areas. Um, and recently I, uh, I left academia um, to move into biotech. And how did you get interested in studying genetics? So I uh, got interested in genetics a long time ago, um, uh, all the way back uh, as an undergraduate. Um, and I knew I was interested in biology, um, but I didn't really know what part of biology yet. And so I decided that genetics would be a way to kind of move into any area of biology I got interested in because genetics is everywhere. Um, and then as I started doing work in genetics, I found that I just really loved genetics itself. Um, its connection to evolution, its connection to health. And so I got, I got uh, drawn in specifically to, uh, to genetics and human genetics that way. So you said you made this transition from academia to basically industry. So can you just expand a little bit what made you do it and how did you find it? Was it easy or difficult? Yeah, so um, the primary motivation uh, for my move um, really was that um, we had gotten in academia pretty good 
uh, at identifying genetic causes of disease. Um, and I don't want to trivialize that. That was really a major achievement of, of the academic community. Um, and in particular, we really figured out how to effectively use advances in genome sequencing to really be able to systematically identify um, the underlying causes of, of disease in patients um, that have severe genetic diseases. And so it became really quite routine um, to start, for example, with a child with a presumed strongly genetic disease to sequence his or her entire genome and to come back and be able to say, we now know why your child has disease. Um, I had been involved in that kind of work, uh, in some cases helped to kind of try to figure out how to do that kind of work well. And I had been involved in many discussions with um, patient families about the underlying causes of disease. And while uh, it was certainly important to be able to provide that information about underlying cause, I also found it very frustrating because very frequently we would tell the family we now know the cause of disease, but unfortunately we don't have an effective treatment for that disease that we now know your child has. Uh, and as that happened more and more, I became increasingly interested in using genetic causes of disease as a starting point for de developing therapies that are targeted to specific genetic diseases. Um, and I first uh, got involved in biotech just over six years ago uh, when I founded one biotech company, uh, but remained in academia. Um, and I became really so interested in the potential uh, to develop new effective treatments for rare genetic diseases that watching uh, the development of that company um, and others, uh, I eventually decided to make the transition and spend the remainder of my career uh, really laser focused on developing new treatments for um, rare devastating diseases. And what would you say to our student listeners and also early career researchers and people who might be interested in having in making this transition? So I would say now um, uh, it's really, I think, um, not as difficult as it was before um, to move really back and forth um, between industry and academia. It used to be that these worlds really were thought of as pretty distinct, um, but there's really so much uh, very, very high quality science being done um, as specifically in biotech. And of course, I will emphasize that I'm very biased uh, as uh, someone who started a biotech company, but there's really so much very high quality science being done that I think the academic world is increasingly recognizing that uh, biotech experience is terrific for people that have academic interests and vice versa. Um, so I, I really now um, see those as very um, closely linked uh, professions. Uh, and so I see increasingly that students being trained specifically in genetics um, often pay a lot of attention to biotech. The biotech world certainly pays a lot of attention to the academic world. And so I think that um, anyone training certainly in, in, in genetics, genomics areas that I know well, um, they often really are looking closely at career opportunities, um, uh, you know, both in, in academia and in biotech. And they're also recognizing the possibility of, of, uh, of moving between the two. 
So your latest book is The End of Genetics, Designing Humanity's DNA. So what inspired you to write it? So I, I, I wrote that book because I, I really became increasingly more worried um, that we would start to do things with reproductive genomics before we really knew what we were doing. Uh, and of course, one of the things that got me worried about that was the very unfortunate example of editing um, uh, humans in China um, that I talk about in the book. Um, and I think that really is just an illustration um, that we are likely collectively, and I'm not talking about China specifically, but we collectively, humanity, are, are really likely to start using some of these uh, genomic tools that allow us to edit the genomes of human beings um, before we know what the consequences are gonna be. And so I decided that uh, it would make sense to try to outline those concerns, um, but to do so in a way that would be hopefully um, accessible to non-geneticists. And the, and the reason that I wanted to do that um, is that I, I really do consider the question of what we ought to do in terms of reproductive genomics um, to be one that can't be answered only by specialists. It's really something that we all have to weigh in on. Um, and so I wanted to write a book that not only kind of outlined what might happen, but provided a basic grounding in genetics so that uh, non-geneticists would be able to really think through what might happen, what the potential implications might be. And I, and I hope that that would help uh, to start a process to really think this through carefully to make sure that we are as deliberate and as ready as possible, uh, given the, the very high likelihood that we're going to be able to do an awful lot of editing of the genomes of children in the, in the future. All right, so let's dive in. And my <laughs> initial question right away was the end of genetics. Haven't we just started? Yes, I mean, that, that is cer certainly a, a, a little bit of a pr provocative title, and it is certainly um, uh, a little bit inaccurate. Um, uh, certainly, genetics is not really ending, and I, and I confess to that uh, in the beginning of, of the book. Uh, but the reason I, I, I wanted to use that title um, is that uh, I think it really is fair to say that the way genetics has worked until recently will be coming to an end. Um, and I, I tried to, to illustrate that with a few examples um, in the book, um, but uh, one of them that's very, very clear um, is that um, whenever uh, couples have children, um, there are very well-known risks of genetic disease uh, that um, the couples really do have to simply hope um, won't lead to disease in their children. And some of those um, causes of well-known causes of disease, we now already have the potential to by and large ensure don't occur in children. Um, and so that represents a really fundamental change in the way human genetics works. And as those tools improve, we'll be able to do more and more of that kind of work to ensure um, that children are not born um, that have genetic diseases that, that, that could be prevented by these kinds of approaches. Um, 
an illustration that I provide in the book um, uh, that really shows that this is happening already um, relates to recessive genetic diseases. So these are diseases where an individual has the disease if they inherit a mutated copy of a gene from mom and a mutated copy of a gene from dad. So these are diseases where one working copy of a gene is enough to be okay. But if both of your copies are broken because you got a mutation from mom and a mutation from dad, then you have disease. These diseases um, can now be prevented. It really is as simple as that uh, because we can identify in advance um, the individuals that have mutations in the same gene. And once those uh, mutations are identified, um, it is possible to use a variety of approaches, but it is now possible to reliably um, ensure um, that uh, embryos are developed that do not carry both mutations. And so that is a type of genetic disease that if we were to systematically apply uh, uh, deploy available technologies, we would be able to prevent. There are other kinds of genetic diseases that with today's technology, we are not able to prevent. Uh, just for example, by and large, uh, uh, diseases that result from a single brand new mutation uh, that uh, appears in, um, in a developing embryo, for example. We can't currently prevent those, uh, but I do outline um, a series of, of technical advances that are likely in the future that will, that will likely eventually allow us to prevent those too. And with these kinds of developments, we really do um, transition uh, from the way genetics has always worked for uh, humans and other species um, to a very, very different kind of genetics. And, that, and that's why, I, that's why I, I, I use the title that I did. And how did the field of genetics, as we know it today, start? Well, the field of genetics as we know it today, um, I, I pro it's probably, of course, as, as in all major branches of science, there were multiple threads that led to the modern form of the science. Uh, but but it's probably fair to say that uh, that the modern form of genetics traces uh, more to Mendel than any other single thing. That's probably fair to say. And I and I and Mendel's a name that most recognize. I um, I, I I provide a, a fair bit of detail uh, about exactly how uh, Mendel worked out the basic rules of genetic inheritance. Uh, by studying, um, but by studying peas, so so that really is uh, that really is probably the the, the 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 if you traced back to a single advance, it probably is more due to uh, Mendel than 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 any other single advance. But of course, there are there are many threads that feed in, and another critically important one um, is uh, the discovery uh, of the structure of DNA and uh, the um, implications of that structure uh, for how uh, hereditary information um, is stored, um, how it is passed on uh, across generations and how it is copied within the body in order to transmit information 
uh, from chromosomes into the building blocks of life, which are uh, proteins. And what was the early history of genetics where we started applying these concepts that we learned from bees to human reproduction? Yeah, so the, um, I, I would say that the uh, reproductive aspects are, are relatively recent, um, uh, relatively recent uh, and, and moving very rapidly now. Um, uh, but maybe a, a, a critical contributor to where we're headed, it really is advances in, uh, in, our, un, in our understanding of disease genetics. Um, and, and there, I think, I think the progress has actually been faster than, uh, than uh, a, a lot of us expected. Um, we, we really have gotten very, very good at identifying um, underlying causes of genetic disease, as I was indicating earlier. And this uh, uh, is, is primarily a consequence of the Human Genome Project, where uh, the uh, near complete sequence of the human genome was determined. Um, and then that allowed the development of a, a very robust toolkit for identifying disease genes. And eventually it led to advances that we now refer to as uh, next generation sequencing uh, that allow us to uh, very, very quickly and, and very inexpensively um, determine uh, the entire genetic makeup of, 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 of an individual. Um, and that is now uh, something that is done routinely and at real scale uh, with uh, literally millions of people around the world having been sequenced either a whole uh, exome, which means sequencing the part of the genome that encodes protein that is most important to uh, genetic disease or whole, or whole genome where you, where, where you sequence everything, including uh, things like regulatory regions. Uh, and, and those advances um, ha have, have really allowed us uh, to, to really understand how genetic differences in about 4,000 genes that cause uh, genetic familial diseases, um, how those influence health uh, around the world um, and really give us a starting point um, for um, thinking about how to ensure that children are not born uh, with mutations that cause devastating diseases. So this era of genomics and big data, um, it was only possible due to advances in technology, wasn't it? To have so much data collected. Yeah, we really, uh, in genomics now, we, we really see uh, an, an effective combination of, um, of kind of traditional uh, uh, biology uh, and 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 the data sciences. Um, there there really is uh, absolutely no way now to practice contemporary genomics um, without some some serious uh, 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 computational tools being deployed. Um, the the data sets that we work with are large and they are um, uh, challenging to work with just in sim simply actually because of the volume. Um, and then the analyses that we need to use in order to really understand how to interpret um, genetic variation in hundreds of thousands of individuals are really quite sophisticated analyses um, where we really need to do things like learn um, what parts of the genome can change without important health consequences 
uh, and what parts of the genome can't change uh, without important health consequences. And there are a lot of, of really uh, powerful tools now that have been developed for that, which I, I, I describe a little bit uh, uh, in, the, in the book. And, and we also have to use sophisticated analysis approaches to try to help us learn um, how mutations actually um, influence risk of disease. It's often much easier to say, I know it's this mutation that's causing disease in this patient, uh, but it's often quite difficult to, to know how that mutation is causing disease. Um, how does it change the behavior of exactly what cells at exactly what developmental stage to influence the risk of disease? And uh, those are often very difficult questions that also need sophisticated analysis approaches that also then um, can lead to very specific questions that need to be addressed with, with laboratory approaches. And so we really do now see uh, genomics as something that requires biological insight uh, and also, you know, analysis and computational chops, uh, and that actually can make it quite, 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 quite challenging work to do. So does that mean that you also have to have sort of adjacent omics fields feed into it, like transcriptomics or even uh, epigenetics, uh, epigenetic patterns, and such uh, stuff like this? Uh, to to really understand. Um, how many mutations influence risk of disease, uh, we really do need to take uh, what you might characterize as, as an integrated approach, mm. uh, not only considering sequence variation, um, but, but also considering a variety of other omic approaches. You might want to ask questions, for example, about how a mutation influences the expression of, of in fact, all the genes in the genome to try to get pointers to exactly how it influences risk of disease. You might want to ask questions about how the how the protein complements of cells have changed, uh, or 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 even um, things as you say like uh, epi epigenetic um, markings that influence the expression of genes. Um, so these are these are all approaches now that are increasingly being deployed to, to really try to understand uh, how genetic variation influences risk of disease. To try to understand. Um, why drugs work the way they do, why drugs work for some people and then they don't work for other people. Um, and, uh, and we increasingly have effective tools to be able to characterize these multiple different um, uh, omic uh, data types. All that said, uh, it is also important to recognize that some of these um, omic data types are, are pretty well understood and we know how to work with them more or less comprehensively. And sequence variation is, is the best example there where even though the genome is large, um, it's a very defined finite problem that we actually know how to investigate reasonably well now. So we can, we can sequence entire genomes. We can ask whether every single base in the genome matches the reference an individual or doesn't match the reference. Um, we can ask questions about populations such as if you sequence lots and lots of people without a disease and a few people with a disease, you can ask whether there are any consistent genetic changes in those uh, with the disease. And we can do that kind of work comprehensively. Uh, once you get outside of the inherited genome, however, it, it, it's no longer possible to do almost any of the OMIC work comprehensively. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is because, for example, Gene expression varies from cell to cell in the body. It varies from time one time to another. 
And so if you're asking, well, how does variation in gene expression influence risk of disease? You have the question of, well, what cell types uh, at what time point? Um, and it's really hard to, to do that kind of work comprehensively like you can for, uh, for the inherited genome. So while these other omic approaches are increasingly powerful and important, we're not nearly as good at working with these other omic data types as we are the inherited genome. So then how much do we know on how this inherited genome influences our health? So that's, that's maybe one of the key questions and uncertainties I tried to emphasize in the book. Um, we know a lot now about how things can go very badly wrong in a person's genome. Um, so when you have, for example, a child that has severe unexplained seizures, um, they will often get sequenced now. And very frequently, in fact, more than half of the time, in looking through such an individual's genome, you will find the unambiguous reason for those seizures in the genome. Um, and so from that perspective, we've actually learned a lot about how the genome influences health. Um, but that's in the extreme case of a severe, strongly genetic disease. If you ask the question, how does the genome influences, influence differences, for example, amongst older healthy people? So just everyday life shows us that we all age on different kind of schedules in different ways. Uh, people that uh, ran together as friends in college will often find uh, that when you're a long way past college, like I am, some folks are still out there running and some can't run anymore. Um, and it's not because they have a genetic disease, but they've just developed along different trajectories. Um, if you ask, what do we know about how the genome influences those kinds of differences amongst people? The answer is we know virtually nothing. <laughs> we really just mm -hmm. don't understand how to interpret the genome in that way. Uh, moreover, if instead of trying to look in a genome to find the cause of a disease, disease that you already see in the clinic, you ask, can we look at a genome and try to figure out based on the genome, what diseases an individual is most likely to get? We're not very good at doing that either. Uh, so there are some really big questions and challenges for interpreting genetic uh, the genomes of people that we really need to figure out how to do well. That's also critical uh, uh, to the whole uh, enterprise of reproductive genomics, because one of the things I really emphasize in the book is that if past experience is any guide, um, we can anticipate uh, that people will want to do more with reproductive genomics than what scientists are comfortable with them doing right now. Uh, just for example, most people that I know are comfortable with the idea of using uh, reproductive engineering of various kinds to ensure that children are not born with early onset devastating diseases. Uh, and most of us, uh, at least geneticists that I've talked to are uncomfortable with the idea 
of trying to do more than that right now, just because of all the uncertainty. Uh, but that probably won't stop people when it's possible from some exploration. And one example in the book that I give is that we all carry uh, rare, presumably moderately harmful uh, genetic variants. And we don't really know what the collective impact of all of that rare vari variation is on, on the health of people that don't have very strongly genetic diseases. Um, in the future, um, we will almost certainly, uh, and I don't know exactly how long this will take, but in the future, we will almost certainly be able to prevent that kind of variation from being present in the genomes of children. Um, but we don't know what the result will be at all. And in fact, I, I illustrated that by um, going around asking geneticists that I knew what they think a person like that would be like, what they would look like and what their behavior would be. Um, and the answers were just wildly different. Hmm. Um, and so I think what that emphasizes um, is that we've gotten good at understanding the genome in some very specific contexts, uh, but there is a great deal that we don't understand. And specifically, we don't understand much uh, about how the genome makes us different from one another um, outside of uh, uh, those individuals that have very severe diseases. Okay, so sticking with diseases, uh, what cases really interest you, which can be traced back to our inherited genomic variation? So I, I, um, I worked a lot in, um, in as I said, in, uh, in, neuropsychiatry um, and, uh, and some other disease areas. And where I've concentrated um, uh, my attention is, is on, disease, on diseases where a single genetic change is sufficient uh, to lead to disease. And the reason that I've concentrated on those types of genetic diseases um, is that uh, they represent particularly tractable uh, drug development propositions. Uh, and the reason they do is that a really big challenge in developing uh, uh, new treatments for disease is that what we call the common diseases, uh, for example, uh, uh, a disease like, um, like depression or schizophrenia, um, these diseases um, are uh, demonstrably highly heterogeneous where if you look at um, uh, patients with uh, diseases like those and others, um, from one patient to another, we, we know that there will be important differences in the reasons that they have disease, some genetic contributions, some environmental contributions. Um, but if you look at these strongly genetic diseases, we can identify diseases where, for example, there's a certain kind of epilepsy where every single patient with that kind of epilepsy or almost every single patient, this is virtually always exceptions in biology, but almost every patient with that kind of epilepsy, for example, will have that form of epilepsy because of a mutation in an individual gene where the mutations all do something similar. Um, and what that means is that you really can zero in on that consistent mechanism of disease to try to develop an effective treatment. That's, that's where, I spend 
my time and energy because of the opportunity um, to really make a difference in the lives of those patients. And it really is striking to me that we now know about uh, approximately 4,000 genes in the human genome where uh, mutations can cause uh, uh, inherited disease, uh, uh, the majority of them very serious. And the vast majority of those genes um, cause diseases that we do not currently have effective treatments for. But I feel in many cases we could uh, if we made a systematic effort to develop those treatments. And, that, and, that, and that, that's actually the reason that I'm now doing, doing what I'm doing. And now coming to the human reproduction. So how do we use genetics for human reproduction? And also after the baby is born, for example, sequencing their genome. Um, so today um, there's increasing um, use of, of genetic testing uh, through, uh, for example, uh, non-invasive prenatal testing, where actually you can get information about uh, the baby's uh, genome uh, by, uh, by uh, taking a sample of blood from the mom. And, and there is uh, some uh, circulating uh, genetic material from the fetus in that blood sample. And so you can look at things like um, whether there are um, chromosomal abnormalities. Um, and that's increasingly um, a test that is performed currently. Um, you also, as I was uh, outlining um, uh, earlier, um, uh, you can sequence the, um, the genomes of prospective parents um, and you can indicate whether or not um, they have mutations in the same gene. And then if they do, um, then it's possible to ensure um, that uh, they um, would only um, have children that don't have two mutations. And the way that you would do that um, is, is actually through um, testing um, embryos um, uh, outside of uh, uh, it, it, what we call in vitro outside of the body to identify only embryos that um, that do not carry both mutations and then and then and then those would be um, uh, implanted for development. So there, um, so there are approaches uh, currently that can and are being deployed um, to try to catch um, at least some um, of the genetic causes of, of severe uh, early onset um, uh, uh, diseases. Uh, but these approaches are not able to, uh, to identify a lot of, of the causes of early onset genetic disease. So there's still an awful lot more to do um, to use these kinds of, of, of reproductive genomic approaches uh, to ensure uh, children do, do, do not have um, uh, uh, severe early onset uh, genetic diseases. Uh, I will also say that um, my quite strong orientation that I, I think comes through uh, pretty clearly in, in the book um, is that for the foreseeable future, um, it is my very strong preference that that's all we do <laughs> with uh, reproductive engineering because mm -hmm. I, I really feel that there is so much uncertainty that it, it would be uh, deeply unethical to perform experiments to figure out what would happen uh, effectively on people uh, by moving beyond 
that use uh, of reproductive genomics into things like trying to sculpt the genomes of children in, in ways that are not designed to prevent disease, but in ways that are designed um, to lead to what are thought to be desirable outcomes. Uh, you know, for example, trying to sculpt the genomes in ways to um, increase intelligence um, using things like genome-wide predictors of, of, of what the intelligence might be of an individual. Uh, I, I feel that we currently are a very long way away from being able to do that kind of work in a way that we would know the consequences. And so we therefore should not do so. Um, regarding your other question about sequencing, uh, for example, um, uh, newborns, um, this is something that is getting a lot of attention and, and interest because we could do a lot of good uh, by sequencing people very early. And the earliest that we might sequence them, uh, well, we could in, in fact, as I was indicating earlier, even sequence prenatally, uh, but, uh, but at, at an obvious very early uh, time point would be shortly after birth. And, and we could do a lot of good in sequencing newborns. Um, it, for example, as, as a regular uh, uh, routine uh, clinical test um, because we know that there are a lot of genetic diseases um, that if you treat them early um, will have much better outcomes than if you treat them later after the onset of disease. And so if we were able to sequence truly at scale so that we could catch the genetic diseases based on what we see in the genome before they present in the clinic, we could certainly help a lot of patients and a lot of people. And that is um, the reason that there is a lot of interest in, uh, in, in new, newborn screening programs. And, and there's soon, there's already been many projects are soon to be announced, a whole bunch of new projects, I have no doubt, and I know about some. Uh, but I think it's also very important uh, to recognize um, that we're actually not yet that good mm -hmm. at, um, as I was saying earlier, at identifying genetic changes that we think will cause disease in the future. And it's really critical uh, to understand that it's a completely different challenge if you start with a clinical presentation of disease, so you have a child who's sick at the doctor's office, and then you look at the child's genome to find the cause. That's not the same thing as taking a child who isn't sick and asking whether their genome is gonna make them sick. For a whole bunch of reasons, um, that latter problem is way harder. And um, the biggest difficulty really fundamentally boils down to a kind of false positive problem. And some people don't like calling this a false positive problem, but it really is fairly and accurately considered as a false positive problem in that we know for sure that if we try to look at the genomes of newborns to find out what might make them sick in the future, we're gonna actually identify a whole bunch of 
babies where we predict they're going to get sick because of their genome and they won't. And that's a really big problem because um, the genetic diseases that we're trying to catch are themselves quite rare. And we know that in some cases we will catch things that aren't there. Mm. Um, and how those two weigh up, the harm that we do in looking at genomes and thinking a baby's eventually going to be very sick, but won't be, um, and the benefit that we get from catching those early that really will get sick, it's really hard to know how that weighs up. And I will just note that in the context of at least um, the American healthcare system, there certainly is um, a consistent tendency to intervene more than is helpful. And so I think we do have to be worried that if we begin sequencing the genomes of babies at scale, there would end up being interventions based upon the genomes of babies that are not needed and that end up doing harm. And one way I like to illustrate that is um, I've looked at a lot of genomes in my career, including my own. And every genome that you look at has some things in it that look pretty scary. And the way that I put this is, if, if I wanted to, I, I could really scare anyone by talking to them about their genome, because there's always things that you could point at and say, wow, that's, that's pretty yucky. And you've got that mutation in that gene. Uh, but a lot of those won't end up doing anything. Um, and so I think this is a very real concern that we need to figure out how to address in order to be able to realize the very real benefits of looking carefully at genomes very early in life. So many of our listeners would have heard about the case where all of this was brought to life or what you said about being a bit concerned of that we're going to start genetically engineer humans and something like this happened. So can you maybe describe the case of uh, Her Jiankui and what happened there and what are the implications? Uh, the background to the story um, is that um, there's a, a gene in the genome uh, that um, uh, has mutations uh, uh, in the general population um, that uh, uh, protect people uh, against um, uh, infection with HIV. And this gene uh, encodes uh, a protein uh, on the surface of cells uh, that HIV latches onto and, and, and uses uh, to actually get into cells. Um, and uh, a, a relatively high proportion of individuals of, um, of, of uh, European ancestry specifically uh, have a, a, a loss of function mutation in this gene. And if you have uh, uh, two loss of function mutations in this gene, unlike some of the other disease genes we talked about, it doesn't make you sick. But if you have two mutations in this, uh, in this gene, two loss of function mutations in this gene, you don't make this surface protein. Um, and by and large, as I said, in biology, there's always exceptions to everything. But by and large, you're protected uh, against infection with, with, uh, with, um, with, with, with HIV. And in fact, that genetic insight um, 
uh, led to uh, the development of one of the drugs for HIV uh, that operates by, uh, by blocking this, uh, this receptor. They're making it hard for um, HIV to uh, spread from, um, from cell to cell uh, uh, in the body. And, and interestingly, that is one of the very few um, treatments uh, for HIV that work on something from the host as opposed to attacking the virus, which is the typical uh, uh, way that, uh, well, HIV and, and, and many other uh, uh, viruses are, uh, are, 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 um, are, are therapeutically addressed uh, uh, with antivirals that directly, directly tar target the, uh, the, the, the virus. And I will say also that um, that experience um, of the CCR5 gene, uh, which encodes the protein that HIV uses to get in to cells, um, and uh, the resistance it confers to HIV, that was actually, that's, that, that um, uh, history and example uh, was a, a big motivation for the, the, uh, the, the large uh, uh, scale genomic efforts uh, uh, applied to, 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 to COVID-19 in, in, the, in the hope that, um, that, that maybe we would identify similar things that would provide therapeutic guidance. Uh, nothing yet has been as clear as CCR5 and HIV, although those, those genomic efforts are ongoing. Uh, but that background of the relevance of this gene to protection against HIV uh, led a, an investigator uh, in China to edit the genomes of children uh, 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 with, with CRISPR-Cas editing which is uh, a, 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 a new approach for being able to make highly, highly targeted changes in the genome. And, 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 and a key reason that, uh, that really substantial uh, advances in reproductive genomics will, will be on the horizon. Um, that background led the, the Chinese investigator to edit the genomes of, uh, of, of children. Um, uh, to uh, to create uh, uh, people that would be like those that have the the mutations in this gene naturally um, that would not make uh, the uh, the protein and therefore be protected against uh, against HIV uh, because their, their their parents were positive and the idea uh, was that that would pr protect them. Uh, most of the people that I've talked to about this uh, feel that that this experiment in people was wrong uh, in every single way that you look at it. Um, and that is entirely my view that it's wrong in every way you look at it. Um, there is there is not a clear clinical need to make that change. Um, uh, there are effective alternatives in the context of, of, uh, of, of, of children born to parents with, with HIV. Um, so there is not a compelling clinical need, uh, but more importantly, um, uh, there is absolutely no evidence that that is a safe procedure um, to apply to people. We have no idea what other changes might be made uh, elsewhere in the genome. And we, despite 
contrary claims from the investigator, we do not currently have a way to effectively assess that. Uh, we are not able to um, do that editing of the targeted uh, gene in, for example, uh, uh, a, a very early stage uh, 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 developing a pre-embryo and, um, and then be able to test whether we've adversely affected any other part of the genome. We're, the technology isn't there for us to be able to do that. Um, and so what was happening here is we had a situation of something that was not clinically needed, very, very clearly dangerous for the subjects. Um, and then from the perspective of, of, of ethical clinical research, um, this fails uh, in, 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 in really every conceivable way. Um, and so I think has to be viewed um, really as, you know, a, a, a really incredible warning to the world uh, that we need to be a whole lot more careful about what we do with these technologies with people. And then reflecting a little bit and just looking at the big picture. So why is it important for our society to talk about these things and set up the international ethical standards when we talk about human germline manipulations and editing? And where do we go from here to the future? Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, I think that's exactly the point. And I'm really glad that you raised that, you know, at the end. I, I, I think that my view is that uh, before too long, everyone's gonna to have to think about this because they're gonna to have to decide how much to intervene um, in, uh, for anyone that, that will be reproducing in the future, they will have decisions to make about how much to intervene um, in uh, uh, the, the genomes of their children. Uh, and uh, I feel that we already know enough um, that it, it really is warranted for people to take steps to ensure that they have children that aren't born with mutations that we know will, for example, mean that the child doesn't live very long. I consider it a, 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 a very valuable uh, deliverable uh, of genomics research that we can prevent those kinds of diseases um, and really increase human well-being um, by doing so. Um, but uh, as I have said repeatedly, we will be able to do more than that. And people will have to make their own choices about what exactly they want to do. Uh, and because that will be coming and because the consequences could be so dramatic for humanity as a whole, uh, I, I really believe that we need to establish a process now for increasing understanding uh, about what can be done today and what's coming uh, and really get a process started to think through how we want to influence what's going to be done to make sure that we act with as much deliberation and frankly caution uh, as possible. And what discoveries in your research and your journey to writing your book at the end of genetics surprised you the most? You know, it's, it's funny you ask that. What, what I guess what surprised me the most specifically related to end of genetics is how worried I ended up being. Um, <laughs> I started out uh, thinking that it would you know, be fun for me and, and I hope interesting if I kind of told the story about where we're at and what might be coming because I thought, you know, it's actually some pretty uh, important implications to all of this. And I thought it'd be fun to kind of write it out. And then as I was writing it out at every turn, I, 
I just thought, gee, we we just don't know what we're doing. And uh, and 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 really, uh, the book kind of went its own way without it being entirely my plan. Uh, that in the end, I ended up really writing a book that was more than anything an expression of fear about what mm-hmm. might happen. And, and, um, and, and that did surprise me a little bit. It's, it's not exactly the way that I set out to write it. It's just that once I dove into it, I just realized, as I said, at every turn, there's just so much that we don't know. And I, and I really don't feel like we're gonna understand enough uh, about how genomic differences influence who we are um, soon enough <laughs> to enable us to, to, to really make large scale manipulations and know the consequences of those manipulations. And, and so it was really that the magnitude of my concern as I wrote the book that was the, the, the biggest surprise for me. And did you have your own genome sequenced? Did you find any genes related to some superpowers? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have sequenced my own genome. I, I, I did that myself uh, as part of a course I was teaching. Uh, I sequenced myself and the other um, uh, 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 teachers in the, in the course. And, um, and, uh, and I talk about that in the book. Um, and I will say that, that, that my genome was completely boring. I, I didn't find really anything of any interest whatsoever in my genome. And, and I guess that's itself a kind of interesting comment because um, it, it is true that most of what we know how to interpret in the genome is, is, is not good news. Um, and you, you do want your genome, in fact, to, to be boring uh, for that reason. Um, and it also illustrates the uncertainty that I was talking about earlier, where if you don't have an a severe disease that presents relatively early in life, we're not very good at understanding how the genome makes us different from one another. And so if you take somebody who's not young um, and in reasonable health and have a look at their genome, we we often don't see that much in it. Now, um, what's boring to me may not be boring to somebody else. And some people say that they looked at the genome and found all sorts of interesting things in there. Um, But I I actually like to be relatively strict in in talking about what's important in a genome, something that really makes a difference and the difference that it makes you can do something about. Um, and in that context, I, I just didn't see a thing in my own genome. Well, this has been a truly thought-provoking discussion. So what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? So I am currently um, uh, working on developing an effective treatment for a rare genetic disease. Um, it's still confidential in the company, so I can't say what the disease is, but we're working on developing a treatment for a rare genetic disease. And we are hopeful that we're on the course to having a treatment that will help a lot for, for these patients. Um, and then after that, however long that takes, um, we'll be doing the same thing again for other genetic diseases. Fascinating. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? So um, more information about my work. Uh, if, um, if you Google my name in genetics, you'll, you'll find uh, some descriptions of what I do and, and pointers to even the primary literature. And the book can be found in all the usual ways. And that also provides a little bit of detail about, uh, about exactly what, what I've done in my academic career too. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. 
It's been a great conversation. Galena, really nice talking to you. Thanks for the interest in the book. <laughs>